This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 34th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at Marvel 2-in-1 number 52, featuring The Thing and Moon Knight, from Marvel Comics, of course, cover dated June 1979. But first, a little feedback. Christopher, also known as Ehud the Deliverer, emailed again about Doctor Strange, specifically the Phase 3 Marvel movie. This might be old news to you, Professor, but have you heard about the Doctor Strange movie? A while ago, Marvel was saying that they were considering doing some of their lesser-known characters with smaller budgets, but they were going to find visionary, indie-ish directors and give them more freedom with the character. Doctor Strange is one of the examples they gave, and now that Doctor Strange film is on the schedule, and director Scott Derrickson has been attached I'm sure they picked him because he's known for making successful demon movies on lower budgets. He's also a very intellectual Christian who asks deep spiritual questions in his films. Now, we've talked about on this podcast my interest in spiritual questions and, and that type of subject matter. And there are some interesting theologies and cosmologies at work in both the DC and Marvel universes. Christopher mentions that this director, Scott Derrickson, did The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is one of Christopher's favorite movies, and one that I liked as well, and I'm not really a horror guy at all. Christopher notes that the director said he loves to work in horror because it's the only style where the audience walks in assuming there is a spiritual realm. So Doctor Strange should be an interesting fit for this guy. I kind of agree, Christopher. Thanks for the email. Uh, Christopher did provide a link to his review of the Emily Rose film, which is on his site, questionentertainment.wordpress.com. I'll include a specific link to his review on the blog post for this episode. Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes and Quantum Cast podcasts on the Two True Freaks Network also wrote in on Doctor Strange, saying that he always thought that the good Doctor and his DC counterpart, Doctor Fate, were better as side characters than as leads. You know, the kind of person a Captain America or Superman can go to when they have a mystical problem. Maybe it's my role-playing background, or even my love of Arthurian stories. But I like magic to have rules, and a mage, no matter how powerful, should not be prepared for every eventuality. He then loses me with some Quasar comments of some type. But the parts that I could understand and made sense, good points, Gene. And uh, and I, I do agree with the concept that magic stories need to be carefully controlled. Because that can easily turn into your deus ex machina way of solving every problem at the end. Ben Avery of the comic book Time Machine and Welcome to Level 7 podcasts also wrote in. I have to say that while I'm not really into Doctor Strange as a character, 
other than having a few random issues in my collection. If this story is representative of this era or run in Doctor Strange's history, I'm almost interested enough to try and pick some of these issues up. Almost. Remember our rule here, Ben. We only recommend books up to and including a price point of 25 cents. Beyond that, three for a dollar, 50 cent bins, dollar bins, you're on your own. Ben also says that he got my references in the synopsis of that issue. Professor, I found my image of Dr. Strange transmogrifying into Tom Baker somehow. Well, I'm glad someone mentioned getting those references. Thank you, Ben. Also, shout-outs to D. Lewis Martin and Mr. Clever, who both left nice iTunes reviews. Thank you, fellas. Appreciate that. Martin specifically mentioned the interview with Paul O'Connor in episode 30, saying that that was a very solid episode. Noel Thingval also posted a comment about that episode, episode 30, the Paul O'Connor interview. Great interview, Professor. Ultraverse is another one of those imprints I've been eager to finally sit down and check out. Some great writers in there, that's for sure. And I've always been intrigued by what I've heard of how the universe was constructed. Yeah, I agree with Noel. I've heard enough good things about the Ultraverse from listeners like Nolan, Jason, Ben, Luke, that I hope we can get another Ultraverse book on the podcast sometime soon. Paul O'Connor, the subject of that interview, also pimped that episode to his buddies at the We Talk Comics network of podcasts, which do a news and review podcast, as well as the occasional you know, top five episode or countdown episode. Uh, really fun stuff like that. Well, Chris from We Talk Comics sent in some feedback recently. I only recently discovered your wonderful take on the podcast forum, Professor. I get the feeling we are roughly the same age, and I too was and am a quarter bin shopper. A man after my own heart. Over the last few years, I've personally found quarter bins a bit of a rarity, at least here in Canada. I found now that I buy my new comics digitally, the quarter bin has been replaced with the Comixology 99 cent offerings. I'd love to hear a version of your podcast featuring one of those, albeit more costly books. I don't want to reinvent the wheel, just suggesting maybe a variant cover to your podcast. That's a really interesting suggestion, Chris. I like the idea that the 99 cent Comixology sort of replacing the, the physical discount bins. Uh, also, uh, you know, th- thanks for the overly kind words about the podcast. I should consider something like that, but I worry about the consequences that changing the rules of the podcast would have on my more, shall we say, sensitive listeners. You know, like the irredeemable shag and, well, actually just shag. But I will take that under advisement, Chris. Thanks for the idea. Uh, Check out the We Talk Comics show, as well as other shows in the We Talk podcast network. A quick promo goes right here, and then when we come back, we'll cover Marvel 2-in-1, number 52. Alibi Jones' girlfriend was just kidnapped. His best friend Kit's new wife was killed. 
and the priceless artifact, the sunrise of her, was stolen. Now, the kidnappers are threatening Alibi's life. He's just been assigned to find the sunrise of her. Can Alibi stay alive long enough to track it down? Check out the new novel, Alibi Jones and the Sunrise of Her, with Mike Luoma. Get it on iTunes and at patiobooks.com. Glowinthedarkradio.com. Marvel 2 in 1, number 52, had a cover price of 40 cents, meaning I acquired this book at an okay enough 38% discount. The cover by George Perez, Gaspar Saladino, and Joe Sinnott promises us action all the way and tells us we are in the path of crossfire. The cover does live up to that action-packed promise, with Moon Knight throwing a moonerang at one of the five uniform security dudes at the bottom of the page. Three of them are firing blasts at the thing, smashing a piece of equipment, sending another uniformed henchman flying. All the while, a dude in a red jumpsuit is watching from a view screen overhead. I can just tell from the cover that this one's gonna be awesome! The story, a little night music. That's night with a K, by the way. You know, because of Moon Knight. A little night music was written by Stephen Grant with art by Jim Craig and Pablo Marcus. The issue starts with The Thing in a spiffy purple tuxedo where he is at a fancy event to accept a Super Science Award in Reed Richards' place. But another man is there as well, for he has heard rumors of a kidnapping. He wears many faces, goes by many names. He is the Moon Knight. Actually, at this point, he is in his identity of billionaire Stephen Grant. No relation to the scripter of this issue, also named Stephen Grant? Although the guy that this Stephen is speaking to via a hidden comlink calls him Mark. Before the ceremony can get underway, the costumed henchmen from the cover arrive, guns blazing. They're not trying to hide their appearance, as they are in yellow bodysuits with red gloves, boots, and briefs. An older gentleman at the event rushes to the thing, begging for protection. Protect me! I didn't know they were so... But he is shot in the back. Dying in the thing's arm, he says, Mustn't end like this. You can stop him. You have to. While Stephen Grant, a.k.a. Mark Spector, ducks out of the room, the thing takes off after the costume thugs. He came to me for protection and you shot him. Do you think your pop guns mean something to me? Moon Knight crashes back into the room, joining the battle. Thing is not excited with this development. Who and Sam Hill? Just what the world needs. Another blasted superhero. Sorry to crash your party thing, Moon Knight says, delivering karate kicks left and right. But you looked like you could use some help. As the cops arrive, Moon Knight needs to split. From high overhead, the whir of helicopter blades echo through the broken skylight as a rope ladder shoots down with an easy grasp of Moon Knight. Although Ben failed to stop the killing, he did learn of the mastermind's location from the dying man. Moon Knight has meanwhile performed a quick change in the helicopter because he arrives in his cabbie identity of Jake Lockley to give Ben a lift to the secret location. When Ben crashes in on the crooks, Moon Knight is also there to lend a hand, 
Oh, no, not the Junior G-Man again. It's impossible. But with some cool leaps and kicks, Moon Knight comes in very handy, and he and the Thing take down henchmen after henchmen. When the bad guys drive a forklift at Ben, he is insulted. Of course he is. And in a pretty splash page, full of consequences, we get our necessary catchphrase. I almost feel sorry for you now, creeps, because you went and made me mad. And that means... It's clobbering time! The villain known as Crossfire appears on a view screen, and Moon Knight recognizes the voice of that of William Cross. It is him. But how? He's supposed to be dead. A knockout gas is released, and they're captured. They awake chained in a room with machine guns trained on Moon Knight should Ben try to escape. While they're chained there, Crossfire tells them his master plan, because we're on page 10, and Crossfire knows the whole story has to wrap up by page 17. His plan has something to do with sonic disruptions, and somehow that will wipe out the superheroes of New York City, and while he monologues, Moon Knight is planning. Keep talking. I can put the time to good advantage. Crossfire believes he can brainwash the thing, and Moon Knight believes he might just be able to do it. Back when Mark Spector was freelancing for the CIA, Mark Cross was the best brainwasher they had. Working with him was an education in itself. How long you think you can hold me anyway? Thing asks him. The FF ain't gonna twiddle their thumbs when I come up missing. But Cross's plan is to turn Grimm against the FF through his brainwashing and then brainwash all four into battling the Avengers to the death. He hopes this will sway public opinion on superheroes to the negative when they see the death and destruction that they cause. Because, you know, they've never caused death and destruction in the prior decades before this book was... But but that's not a plan! This is mumbo-jumbo at best. It's maniacal ravings at worst. Fortunately, the guards with the guns on Moon Knight were so entranced by Crossfire's words that they didn't notice him escape artist his way all the way down the hallway, a la Mr. Miracle. Moon Knight knows the way to Crossfire's chamber in the building because his mask protected him from the knockout gas. This was all part of the plan, you see? They find more gunmen before a huge, thick metal door. In the scene from the cover, Moon Knight tosses a pair of moonerangs sorry, that's pretty much what they are, to disable their guns while Thing slams himself right through the huge metal door. That part? Pretty cool, truth be told. What? You found me? No matter. You will simply be the first to die so that this city might live. Crossfire attacks the keyboard of his infernal mind-warping device, sending wave upon wave of high-intensity sound pounding into his victim the thing collapses. I promised I'd get ya, but I can't go on. But remember that Moon Knight knew the Crossfire guy back in the old days. Isn't it ironic that you taught me methods of withstanding any type of torture or brainwashing? Even your own. Seeing Moon Knight get to the bad guy gives Thing enough strength 
to rip up the floor, crashing the machine to pieces. In a kind of weird last page, Crossfire is seemingly killed when he can't get rid of a bomb quick enough. I mean, some days you just can't get rid of one. And it goes off in his escape elevator. The thing believes he'll be back for more one day. But for now, his worries are more personal. I just want to know how I'm going to get back to Manhattan. I can never find a cab this time of night. But Moon Knight, a.k.a. cabbie Jake Lockley, assures the big orange rock monster, somehow grim, I don't think you'll have any problem tonight getting a cab. No problem at all. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for our podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And we're back. I'm not usually a big fan of team-up books like this from a you know, steady reading or, or collecting perspective. The only one I remember really consistently enjoying was DC Comics Presents. But for a random pick, grab an issue, read a one-off story scenario, like the Quarterbin podcast, this kind of book could really work. I'll, I'll keep my eyes out for this type of issue for other you know, team-up stories uh, next time they, they have the Quarterbin sale at my LCS. One interesting thing to note about this story is that it was Stephen Grant's fourth published comic book story and his first for one of the major companies. He has had a long and varied career since and has been recently scripting Three Guns, Robocop Last Stand, and Deceivers, all from Boom Studios. And I think for a Marvel debut... He had the basic character traits for both leads under control. There's not a lot of subtlety or nuance going on here, but the thing acts like I think the thing should act like. I like that he didn't want another silly superhero in this town. And there was a bit of meta-narrative here, things speaking for some of the readers who may not have recognized Moon Knight either. This is about Moon Knight's 20th appearance overall, and those have been spread out over four-plus years in a, a range of books like Werewolf by Night, Defenders, and Hulk. And uh, Stan Lee used to say, any issue could be a reader's first issue. I'll adjust that a little bit and say that this issue was definitely many readers' first Moon Knight issue. Again, for comic book context... When this issue came up, we're about a year away from Moon Knight number one, and about two years away from Moon Knight 11. I know you're thinking, what's so special about Moon Knight 11? Why would you bring that up, Professor? Hello, we covered Moon Knight 11 in this very same podcast, episode 12. Go check it out. 
Moon Knight is often dismissed as nothing but a knockoff of Batman. And I know that he has some detractors. I'm looking at you, Dave Elliott, from the Fantastic Forecast. And yes, he is a Batman knockoff, just dressed all in white instead of black. And those moon-throwing star things are just Batarangs. There's no other way to think of them. But I maintain that he is not nothing but a Batman knockoff. One of the, the superhero tropes is that of the secret identity. But one of the distinctives of Moon Knight is that he has multiple secret identities. And Stephen Grant does a real nice job working that aspect of Moon Knight into the story. He was at the gala in his guise of Stephen Grant, but he also appeared as Lockley, the cabbie, which was worked into the plot. We also got Moon Knight's side character, Frenchie, piloting the nearby helicopter, who refers to him by his real name, Mark Spector. Now, as a fan of Moon Knight, I'll pause here while you laugh at me, I thought Grant did a good job covering the basics of the character. Now, the plot of the comic? Pretty shaky. No, really shaky. Taking over the world via sound wave, brainwashing of superheroes to fight each other, to turn public opinion, starting with a plot to kidnap the thing, does not seem totally well thought out. But not all the villains can be Doctor Doom, can they? This was the debut story also of the antagonist, Crossfire, and it took four years for someone else to put him in a story. But, you know, for a one-off, I guess it worked. The plot was not the main event here, and certainly Grant was not going to be given the A-listers for his debut Marvel story. But the story did move at a nice, brisk pace. The dialogue was strong, it was funny where it was supposed to be, including you know, the cabbie joke at the end. And the action set pieces were very nice. The art, that was serviceable. Jim Craig had a run on Master of Kung Fu a few years before this, but did not do a lot of work after. Pablo Marcus inked some of those Master of Kung Fu stories and then worked steadily through most of the 90s. There did seem to be a little Kirby influence in some of the designs, but, of course, the execution does fall well short of the King's work. I covered another Marvel issue from this same month, back in episode 11, that was Micronauts number 6, meaning that a lot of the additional material I mentioned from that issue also appears in this issue. Spalding streetball ad with Rick Barry and Dr. J on the back cover? Check. Hostess ad featuring Spider-Man and... Old Enemy, Hot Shot, check. Letter from future critically acclaimed comic book writer Kurt Busiek, check. Wait. I've looked at two Marvel books, cover dated July 1979, and an 18-year-old Kurt Busiek had letters printed in both of them? I checked Mike's Amazing World, and Marvel only produced 30 comics this month. And Kurt Busiak had a letter printed in a minimum of two of them that month? That's impressive. Now, the letter of his that was printed in, in that Micronaut 6 issue was overwhelmingly positive, as anyone's reaction to the Micronauts should be. This one, on the other hand, eh, let's just say he was not a big fan of this era of Marvel 2-in-1. 
He did say nice things about Jack of Hearts, including pushing for him to get his own series, which would happen sort of a a four-issue miniseries five years later in 1984. But then Busiak gets into critic mode, and I think maybe you can see the makings of a comic book writer here. The last two issues have been fair. The plot was solid, but not much more than that. He then criticizes the artist, Chick Stone, which is definitely what a future comic book writer would do. His big failure was with the Yancey Street Gang. Chick should have taken advantage of the fact that the Yancey Streeters couldn't be shown and concealed their faces artfully with a feeling of mystery. Marvel 2-in-1 is suffering from a lack of direction right now, and that's its main problem. The shuffling of writers and the cornucopia of pencilers hurts the book and gives the impression that nobody cares enough to spend the time to make MTIO a really great series. That's actually really well thought out. I I personally need to make a note to use the word cornucopia more often in quarterbin episodes. Earlier in the episode, for example, I should have said that Moon Knight and the Thing delivered a cornucopia of consequences to the jumpsuit-wearing henchman. I like that. The verdict on Marvel 2-in-1 number 52? Okay, maybe not as awesome as the cover promised, but as I've said before, I am a sucker for Moon Knight, and I thought both he and the Thing were well-characterized. I'm not saying I would have been satisfied paying 40 cents for this 35 years ago compared to everything Marvel was producing, but at 25 cents a few months ago? Well worth it. A legitimate quarter-bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of Marvel 2-in-1 number 52, bringing episode 34 of the quarter-bin podcast to a close. In episode 35... It'll be a listener request episode. Specifically, it's the Shag's Choice episode. But I'll reveal the specific book and tell the story of the role played by the irredeemable Shag in me acquiring it next episode. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, or the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Sir!